Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. This is the word of God. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Would you stay standing as we pray? Father, I pray the words of David in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19, that may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let's have you just be seated, please. My sermon was on the edge of being a lot more memorable today. I realized as I was, got here early and running through it, about five of nine, that I didn't have the last page printed off. There was some scrambling, daughter getting on my computer and running it by in time. So I'm, I'm sorry that you're missing, you're going to miss out on that awkward, abrupt ending that, that would have happened. And I'm afraid you've got to stick around at least an extra 10 minutes uh, for the last page. As we study Matthew 21, I want to make a statement. I think people dismiss Jesus. In fact, I think we're going to all walk through this week. It doesn't matter whether we're walking the corridors of high school, at work, our neighborhood, or the grocery store. We are going to be surrounded by people who are dismissing Jesus this week. You know, we know what it is to dismiss people. A teacher at the end of class, you're dismissed. Maybe a preacher does that. And the message is, you can leave now. But we also dismiss people when, when someone's idea is what's important to them, we just kind of ignore it. I don't take it that seriously. I think we dismiss people when, when we dismiss their authority by pretending to respect it, pretending to appreciate it, but we really don't. I saw God dismissed a week ago. Of all places, I was at a geyser with Sandy at Yellowstone National Park. Old Faithful is a rather famous geyser because it goes off pretty regularly, every 90 minutes or so. But Grand Geyser is about a quarter of a mile away. And if, if you are there when Grand Geyser is going off, there's times when it's really three different spouts that are sending the water up. I know in summertime there'd be quite a few more people there, but even in September, a few hundred people there watching this geyser go off. And as it got near the end and it settled down, several minutes it had been spouting in the different, different places and locations before us were spouting off, sometimes 40, 50 feet in the air. I mean, hundreds of gallons being thrown in the air. 
And it came to a point where it settled down, but no one moved. Because there was a park ranger who had already shown he knew a little bit about what was going on. Essentially had our attention when he said, wait, because sometimes there's an encore. He said, you'll know if it's going to blow again within the next minute because the pool of water, the, the, the main pool of water that's ahead of us will not drain. And that pool of water, I would describe maybe the size of a kid's swimming pool, a, the kiddie pool at your neighborhood swimming pool. And we watched it. He said, if it goes down, that means the, the vent, the hot air is, is not enough. The steam coming up is not enough to sustain it. If it goes down, there's no encore. But he said, if, if that basin of water holds at the rim, just wait. You'll see a few little waves, and we'll see an encore, like, like the last few fireworks on 4th of July. And we're all just, I mean, literally, we're staring at the still water more than we had stared at the geyser, just waiting. And we're just waiting for his commentary. It's holding. It's holding. It's kind of like Braveheart here in Yellowstone National Park. And it's all of a sudden twice maybe the size of this room here, shot up again with about a 30-second encore. And then God was dismissed. Because spontaneously, several hundred people began to applaud a geyser and not a God. I don't know hearts. I don't know minds. But I know that there were many there that were applauding a geyser and not the God behind the geyser. I don't know necessarily if as, as a follower of Christ, I, I needed to bow the knee and thank God in an awkward way at that time. But at least the thought that, that God was the one that orchestrated this. It was not the geyser that deserved the applause, but the God behind it. And I have to ask the question, are there ways in our lives, whether we're at a geyser in Yellowstone National Park or just walking through our lives, that both as believers as well as those who have yet to come to faith, we are dismissing God in different ways. I've been convicted of just some ways as I've prepared. So I may be the only person in this room when we're all done who feels that conviction, but I'm trusting that God will be at work in helping us to ask that question. So let's begin in verse 18 of Matthew 21. It begins with Jesus saying that he's hungry and he's looking for fruit. Just to remind you of the time frame, this is on a Monday morning. The day before has been the triumphal entry. You know, palm branches on the road as Jesus is riding in on the donkey. He has gone into the, the temple area for this Passover week. He, he, he's left with his disciples to go stay in Bethany, a little town about two miles to the east of, of Jerusalem. I'm going to put a picture up there so you can have just, you know, a pretty good visual of what was probably happening on this Monday morning as they're heading down from Bethany, heading back to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is there, the temple, the most prominent thing, as you would survey the landscape. So they're walking down the Mount of Olives, Bethany being just on the other side. They're walking down the Mount of Olives, and on probably a 30, 40-minute walk. And along the way, Jesus is hungry on this Monday morning, 
of Passover week, the most significant week in the history of, of, of our salvation. And as he's walking down, he's hungry, and he spots a particular fig tree. Mark actually says, in the distance, he sees a fig tree full of leaf, and so he goes to it expecting to find some figs. Now, there's some things that we need to know about fig trees in general. I won't bore you with the Latin name of the species or, or some you know, unusual figure of how much protein there is in a fig or something like that. But we need to know that when there were leaves on a fig tree, even from the very time when, when a fig tree would begin to bud, that the fruit appears almost at that time. So if, if time has gone on and, and buds on the tree have become leaves, Jesus is seeing it in the distance, and he goes up and sees leaves, not buds. So this is into the, in, into the season for this tree of demonstrating its leaves, and Jesus goes up expecting, like is always the case, that if it's going to produce figs, there will be figs on that tree. So that applies to all fig trees. But what is unusual about this tree is that Mark will actually tell us it wasn't the season for figs. So if it's not the season for figs, it's not the season for leaves. Because leaves and figs go together when it comes to a fig tree. So this tree is is a tree that is ahead of its time, so to speak. Kind of like Dan Faulkner. Ahead of its time, moving ahead and showing these leaves earlier than other trees. And so Jesus is able to see it in the distance. He's able to approach it and and find a tree that was unusual, stood out among its peers that that either had no leaves at all or maybe just some buds. Now, you don't have to be Johnny Appleseed or related to him to know that, that season to season, fruit trees produce more or less than maybe they did the season before. Drought, I don't know, late frost, early frost, uh, Tree wasn't getting along with the other trees. I don't know, but, but the tree, trees vary in terms of how much fruit they might produce. But Jesus approaches this tree. He walks up to it and inspects the tree, Matthew says, and he's looking up at the branches of this tree that is fully leafed out. And he sees nothing. It says he inspected it and saw none. It's barren. It has no fruit. And what happens next is not a fit of rage. It's not a a, a careless use of power. In an instant, Jesus turns a fig tree that has no fruit on it into a powerful object lesson. Maybe even you could say a parable. He turns this fig tree into a message to his disciples And to you and me, reading the same story a couple thousand years later, a message that began when when Jesus began to preach about true repentance. And so Jesus curses, in verse 19, this tree. May no fruit ever come from you again. And that tree soon looked like The flowers on our French porch when we leave for vacation and entrust the watering to our young adult children. (laughs) Withered beyond repair. May no fruit ever come from you again. 
And if you read the account in Mark, it's actually the next day. You can't tell this from Matthew's account. But it's actually the next day that they walk by and the disciples notice the tree. It actually says in Mark 11.20, withered to its roots. Withered to its roots. So I want to ask you the question, is this just a strange, you know, out of nowhere uh, messaging story? Is this just a strange twist in Jesus' message? Well, let's think back on Jesus' teaching. He's been teaching now for two or three years. I mean, at the time this is happening, he's only got a couple months left on earth. He's in the home stretch of, of his teaching to his disciples, his mentoring of them. And they have heard him teach very often about love and peace and kindness. And did I mention love? You know, good stuff, uplifting stuff. But they've also heard him talk a lot about hell and judgment and the need for true repentance. They, they, they know the message that John the Baptist, his cousin, his predecessor, had delivered. Remember John said, uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and Jesus would follow along that same theme when, when he would say in John 15, 4, he'd say, the Father cuts off any branch that doesn't produce fruit. So Jesus, in his teaching, has talked about things that were encouraging and uplifting, and he's talked about serious warnings as well. So that's not new. What about his miracles? I mean, how can a miracle of Jesus not be heartwarming? I mean, a blind person seeing again, someone lame walking again? Someone who is demon-possessed, like Legion, being able to sit among other people who had roamed the graveyards before? Jesus' miracles brought a better life over and over again. Even brought people back to life. The day before, on, on Palm Sunday, Jesus had gone into the temple. Read it in the earlier part of this same chapter of Matthew 21. And, and it says, the, the blind and the lame came and he healed them. Jesus has continued to do miracles that have brought and given back life. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He, he, he kills a tree. He kills a tree. And so, in judging a tree, this has been called the miracle of judgment. It, it really follows, in terms of a lesson, very much in the warnings he has already given. So why does Jesus kill a beautiful, leafed-out tree? He kills the tree because it's a fraud. He kills the tree because it's a fraud. It is advertising life, but it has no fruit. It's a parable that is a clear warning among all his other warnings. So I want you to picture the scene that's up there still, and picture them walking this Tuesday morning. Jesus has cursed the tree the day before. They're walking down the same path, and, and they approach this tree. And they notice it again. And whether it was that first day when Jesus cursed it or this second day that they see that, that Jesus is, is now seeing what has happened as a result of his curse, 
they're looking up at this tree that has now been cursed and is withered. But the real message is in the background. It's, it's the Temple Mount. It is the frenzy of spiritual activity that is in the background. That is what Jesus is trying to connect it to. As, as, as one pastor, uh, uh, pastor says about this week, he says... Forgive me. He said in, the, in this week, there would be a quarter of a million animals sacrificed, likely, whether doves or, or larger animals. It would be a week in which priests would be dressed in their best priestly vestments, offering prayers, observing the religious, spiritual activities. The Pharisees would certainly be there giving to the needy, trumpeting it, so their generosity would be noticed. You remember Jesus talking about that in the Sermon on the Mount? And, and they'd be praying long prayers, not in the prayer closet, but in conspicuous places to be admired. Jerusalem broadcast, God has favored us. This is the place to worship among all places on earth. But D.A. Carson says it well. He said, this fig tree, much like what was going on in many of the hearts there in Jerusalem, advertised that it was bearing, but it was a false advertisement. Jesus cursed this tree because it made a show of life that promised fruit, yet it was bearing none. So I wonder if we need to be reminded, especially if we are not in Christ, that, that spiritual fruit is the evidence of true repentance. We need to be reminded of the message of this fig tree, the warning that is there, this vivid image of Jesus coming to a place where he curses and brings judgment to someone or to a tree, in this case, that is not bearing fruit. Now Jesus pivots to a lesson on prayer. And he makes a point of saying that prayer must be prayer that is full of faith and not doubting. So I want to read verses 20 to 22. When the disciples saw it, the tree, they marveled, we're going to come back to that word, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The disciples, the word is translated, depending on which uh, Bible translation you have. The word variously means to marvel, to be astonished, to be amazed. A pretty similar idea. They're in Jesus' presence. Isn't it always good to marvel, to be astonished, to be amazed when you're in Jesus' presence? No. And let me explain why. Because they are amazed in a way that shows they are slow learners, that, that they are weak in faith, and that they are spiritually immature. And, and to make that point more clear... I want to remind you of something that we studied some chapters back in John in, in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus calming the storm. 
Now, remember, that's a story that, that we've got some experienced fishermen. People literally grew up on this lake, the Sea of Galilee, in the boat with Jesus. He is sleeping after a day of ministry as they're heading across the Sea of Galilee. And as he is sleeping, a storm comes up and has, it seems like, every one of them scared to the point where they say in Matthew 8, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And you remember the story. In a very short time, Jesus rouses, he, he rebukes, he, he, he looks out of the storm and, and tells it to be still, and it immediately becomes a still, like, like, a, like a sea of glass. And what does it say the disciples do at that point? It says, they marveled, same exact word, they were astonished, they, they, were, they were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So I, I want to put and, and make a link between them being fearful and anxious and, and, and not confident in, in their safety and, and them marveling at Jesus. Because in between, Jesus says the words, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Jesus makes a connection between their fear, their anxiety, their, their marked unsettledness, and their lack of faith. He says, you have little faith. I, I'm looking at your fearful state of, of you arousing me like this, and, and you have little faith. And I think we can make the connection between their little faith and the fact that they were so amazed that this person in the boat... This God in the boat could do what he did. They had already seen healings. They had already seen some of them just the evidence in so many ways of what Jesus was capable of. But they had not made the connection in a, in a way that demonstrated full faith in who Jesus was. Their faith was at least small enough, at least weak enough, that they were astonished that he could do it. And as they stood before a fig tree, and they're astonished, they're amazed. How could, how could this tree just wither? They are amazed because they're still surprised that he can do this. And that's why I say, that in this case, their amazement is a sign of them being slow learners, still weak in faith, still demonstrating a spiritual immaturity. I, I want to make a connection between faith that doesn't doubt, that is strong and vibrant, and a faith that is weak and is prone to doubting. I want to make a comparison between what we've seen in the disciples and what the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, tell us about Abraham. Because the disciples here, just think of what they had seen at this point. When they're up at this, looking at this fig tree. And they're still amazed that this fig tree died at Jesus' words. They'd seen a sack lunch turn into enough to feed ten to 20,000 people. Not just once, but twice. They'd seen a guy lowered down from a rooftop... He'd been lame for, we don't even know how many years, presumably from even birth. Get up at Jesus' words and walk out. They'd seen probably repeatedly people who were blind 
throw away their walking sticks and find their way out of the crowd and down a rocky path. They had seen Jairus' daughter come back from the dead at Jesus' words, get up, little girl. They had seen demons cast out. And some of them had seen Moses and Elijah visit the Son of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now a tree dies, and they're shocked that Jesus can do it. It's a contrast with Abraham. You know Abraham's exploits in the Old Testament. But you know what is said most commonly about Abraham in the New Testament? That he believed God. Look in Romans, look in Galatians, look in James. The same statement quoting Genesis 15 Abraham believed God. And the New Testament helps us understand what only God's Spirit could reveal. Because I can look and see people I have respected and I have admired, some of them, for decades. But God knows their spiritual exploits in a way that I don't know. I cannot see into the heart and know times that they trusted in a way that, that is just unbelievable. But the scriptures, the the Holy Spirit reveals Abraham's confidence in God in such powerful ways. You know, his actions in the Old Testament included that he left Ur, his homeland in southern Iraq, and travels away from that at God's bidding to now modern-day Israel. The Old Testament reveals his actions when at age 75 he's told, you will be the father of many nations. God's promise to him. And he seemed, from what the New Testament, and I'll show it to you shortly, to hold on to that promise when he's 75 to the time he's 100 when Isaac is born. He persevered in that promise of God when very few of us would have been able to persevere. And then when Isaac is born, and and perhaps he's a young teen, and, and God leads Abraham to take Isaac up and sacrifice him, The scriptures make it clear that he persevered in faith without it weakening. Listen to what Romans 4 says from the New Living Translation. That Abraham hoped when there was no reason for hope. He believed God when there was no realistic reasons to believe God. And in Romans it says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. He was one whose faith, the scripture said, did not weaken during those years. And then Hebrews 11, again referring to Abraham's unwavering confidence in God to do the impossible To to make good on God's promises, says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And Abraham considered that God was able to raise him, even able to raise him from the dead. He had such faith. There was no no, no someone who had ever been brought back from the dead. Abraham had such confidence in God that he was willing to believe miracles that had never before happened. 
probably had never even been talked about before that. If you have faith, we read in our passage today, and do not doubt, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. You know, I want to make sure that we know this is not about positive thinking. And I'm not against positive thinking. I think there's some real value in seeking to be upbeat. I prefer to be around those people if I can. But this is not about positive thinking of someone saying, I'm going to beat cancer. As, as, as much as I can commend that enthusiasm. It's, it's not about someone saying, you know, the economy's getting better. I think things are going to work out for us in our business. You know, it's not about someone having confidence, a, a sense of positive view of their circumstance who says, I'm counting on this new dating app. I got a better business plan. My kid has a lot better teacher this year. I'm not making fun of any, any of those things as, as things to have some confidence in. But this is not talking about confidence in circumstances and our actions. The confidence that Abraham demonstrated was a confidence in God and God's promises. That's what faith is about. It is never faith in looking around at circumstances, good or bad. It is about looking to God alone and his promises. And so faith that does not doubt is about holding on to promises that every one of us in Christ have been given. Like Hebrews 13.5, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Like Isaiah 40, that he will give strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak. Like Jeremiah 29 says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And things like Paul talked about to the Philippians in Philippians 4. That he was confident that the Father would meet all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Is there a wake-up call for you in some of that? It's not a matter of questioning you know, your, your faith or questioning your salvation, but more asking the question, if I believe that God spoke this world into existence, if I believe that, that what I read and hear is true, if I look back and see clear seasons in my life when God proved himself to me, if those things are true, can I be one that, that trusts with greater faith, that does not waver in doubt, because the object of my faith doesn't look around, it looks up. And it looks to the promises in this book. And like Abraham, we want to be a people that believe when there's no other earthly or realistic reason to hope. We persevere praying about those things that many would say it's just been too long for this to happen. We pray and we continue to hold on to confidence because the confidence is not determined by the economy, the teacher, the checkbook, the the things in our lives. It is determined by faith and trust in God. I had something that happened to me more than a few times in the emergency room, and I share this with regret. In the 30 years or so, I hung around emergency rooms only because they paid me, I remember seeing patients 
And there would be times that I would come out of an exam room in that emergency room, having seen something that was greatly discouraging. In fact, I would just use the word that seemed hopeless. I would see something in particular. I just remember thinking of a, of a small child, two, three, four years of age. And I, I would leave the room sensing that, that this child's future was hopeless. It might be because they were in there with a disabled grandparent because the parents were in jail. It might be because the, the, the mother or the dad that was there is, was clearly on drugs, maybe making the meth back home that he had, he had ingested before bringing his kid in to be seen. It might mean that the kid literally had all but rags on their body and looked like they hadn't had a bath in a week. Or just that there was such an awkward interaction between, between adults that I thought, what, what, what undiagnosed thing is going on that this child is not getting help? And I would leave and come back to the, to the nurse's station, and I know on occasion I would literally say the words, that kid doesn't have a prayer. I regret those words for two very clear reasons I learned from this text. One is, I looked at that hopeless situation, and, and in that moment, I, I didn't have, my, my faith did, was not sufficient to believe that God, if he chose to, could intervene and do something that I couldn't possibly imagine in this hopeless young life. My faith was that weak. But maybe even worse, this verse teaches me another very significant regret. And that is, when I said to the nurses, that kid doesn't have a prayer. It was true. Because I hadn't changed that. I don't remember in those moments taking the time to even say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, Lord, I, I'm on the run. Patients are waiting. Do what I can't possibly imagine in this hopeless situation. I feel the rebuke years later in my failure. But I think that for me is a reminder that, that the prayer, that the asking that God wants of us, that is, is full of faith and doesn't doubt, sees the God behind even a hopeless, discouraging, uh, ongoing situation. And it turns a sense of hopelessness into a confidence in God that prays and expects. I move on to verse 23, and this is the last part of, of this chapter here that we're studying. And I just want to focus on verse 23 that says this. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? If there was ever a question that religious leaders asked, that they really could care less what his answer was, it, it was this one. They had made up their mind long ago. We don't care what he says. We are against him. He is threatening our power. Uh, we, we are going to continue to do what we're doing. 
it's a serious matter to, to not pray when God urges you to pray. It's a serious matter when our faith, like I shared from my own reflections, has times when it's terribly weak. But it's a very serious matter when, when you simply outright dismiss the Son of God outright, as these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, did at that time. You know, as I look at this passage, I began asking us, you know, would we be open to seeing ways that we're dismissing God in some way or another in our lives? No one comes to the Father except through me. The greatest way we would dismiss this God in our lives is to never embrace him, to never embrace the salvation, the meaning of the cross, and come to Christ in the first place. I think there's a message for believers here as well. That we can dismiss God in some ways, even in the course of this week, despite trusting and having a relationship with him. It came home to me a week ago as I was skipping church, but I was preparing for the sermon last week, right around this time. Because I was in Yellowstone with Sandy, and we were literally about this time a week ago, looking out over the beautiful falls of Yellowstone. You know, the upper falls are there, and just just around the bend of those falls, if you've been there, are the lower falls. And that canyon that John Muir painted in the early 1870s, that probably single-handedly a painting ushered in the first national park, which is Yellowstone. And we were there as we were with other, other people, you know, we didn't know anybody else, but we're looking out over the falls, these beautiful falls, just thousands of gallons of water just pouring down every minute. Uh, the scenery in the background. Fortunately protected. And, and except for all the parking lots, just beautiful. And there was a beautiful little German girl, about four or five years old. I know she was German because I could yes, we could hear her parents talking to her. And the falls are right before us. We're looking out just down the hill, and the falls are there a couple hundred yards away. And on this pathway, this little girl has her back to the falls. And she's looking at this little rock wall that marked the pathway. And she's poking at an ant. Her back is to these falls that people come from all over the world to see. And she's poking at the ants in the wall. And I thought to myself, such beauty, such, such nearness to such power is there. And she's poking at the ant. Have we done that? We have such closeness, proximity to the beauty of Jesus. We have such nearness to his promises. He's given us life. He's given us every reason for confidence in him and in his promises. May we stop poking at the ants and give him all our attention, all our confidence all of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, I even thank you for your disciples. And I don't desire to, to discredit them, but to, to sympathize and empathize and relate to them as I think my brothers and sisters would today. That there's ways in each of our lives that we're slow learners. We're slow to have the confidence in you and your promises that is deserved.
We're slow to even heed warnings that would cause us to pray more for the lost. We're slow to heed the examples of a brother like Abraham who believed despite having so many reasons realistically to not believe. So Father, as we are dismissed from here today, may we not dismiss you in the least way with your help this week. Cause us to rest on Jesus. Rest confidently on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.